by the way. Control is an illusion. Recording to the cloud. Recording to the cloud. We are live. Welcome, everybody. We are a little bit early today, as usual. Thank you guys for joining the Industry 4.0 live stream. Um, as you guys can tell, I'm here in Dallas uh, with the one and only Walker Reynolds. There's two of me. And this is a whiteboard behind us, if you guys could not tell. Recording to the cloud. Recording to the cloud. We are live. Welcome, everybody. We oh, are... you didn't do the... Anyways, thank you again for joining you guys. Uh, Cheryl, for those of you guys that don't know, Cheryl is like one of the most active members in the community discord. And uh, it's it's an honor to have her. She is um, a bit of like a solutions architect. You're a consultant, right, Cheryl? She's still more, I think, of, a fixing. more of a consultant business analyst for the delivery of enterprise solutions. And I don't mean software solutions <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> I'm talking about bigger picture integrated solutions. Excellent. So what, uh, how's everybody doing today? So we're, we're not going to start for two more minutes. Um, we've gotten a successful sound check. Um, uh, got motion sickness listening to that. Sorry about that, Mike. <laughs> I'll, I'm going to remove not, that from the you, stream. It's you know, good. I had YouTube premiering, so it automatically came up when you did. But then I also had it premiering in discord so it came up twice and i would Ooh. shut off one and then hear the other <laughs> so i was hearing it three different ways awesome um so real quick this video is not sponsored by the opto 22 groove epic and that is the truth it is in fact not sponsored this is not a sponsored video but we just thought it would be funny to Put a Groove Epic up in front of us on top of some Phoenix Contacts boxes. So we've got some Phoenix Contact I.O. for the PLC Next underneath the Groove Epic for the uh, the Opto 22. So this is actually uh, kind of funny. I stole this out of one of our engineers offices because we're getting ready to deploy this in a, a mixer application um, for a, a client that we've already done di some digital transformation for one of their facilities. Uh, here in Texas. So this is going to be integrated. This Opto 22 is going to be integrated directly into their existing IIoT infrastructure, which uh, has a um, ignition with uh, our MES 4.0 solution and uh, a recipe manager that we built. And then the, this, the mixer is going to be migrated to the Opto 22 and we plugged in fully stateful. So um, this is a perfect example of how you want to integrate with uh, a greenfield implementation using the Groove Epic. So um, anyway, I stole it off his desk so you guys could see it. All right. Thank you guys for joining. And if you guys hit the like button, I have this little piece of candy for you. Uh, that's yours. If you guys just hit that like button and subscribe. So we you join every week, you know. All right. Awesome. You want to do the intro? That was the intro. Oh, uh, all right. So you guys know that we've got um, this week, we have Cheryl McCrary with us. Um, and, you know, the first 15 minutes or so in the community spotlight, we're going to uh, have Cheryl introduce herself to us and um, um, tell us what she's made of, what, she, what brought her to the community, how she's benefited from the community, et cetera, et cetera. So Cheryl, with that, do you want to quickly give us the 30-second elevator pitch. Who are you and what do you do? 
guys. Well, I have to start, Walker, by telling you that I'm actually from Dallas. I grew up in Oak Cliff. Awesome. So yes. you should know where that is. That's where I grew up, actually, until 1982. I lived in Oak Cliff till 82. Did you? I did. It was yep. the, wrong, the wrong side of the tracks, as they say, or in Dallas, the wrong side of the river, right? That's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So um, I haven't been back in a while, but I've been in Arizona now for about 30 years. So the elevator pitch is kind of hard. And the reason is because you have to have a little background to understand the business of remote sensing and the particular field that I, I got into. Um, I would say it was a happy happenstance. It was um, opportunity meeting preparation kind of thing, but I'm very glad it happened. So I had maybe 10 years of sales and management experience when I took a job working for a local company that was doing EM waveform discrimination <laughs> for lightning events. And they had just reached kind of a milestone in their ability to detect lightning with a resolution, both temporal and spatial, that now made it possible to do root cause analysis on lightning caused damage. And so that expanded their ability to go into different markets. And one of them, of course, was the electric power industry. So I spent the next 10 years or so working with most of the investor-owned utilities in the country. Um, you're in Texas, so that would be TXU, Encore, Entergy, um, AEP even. And I was working with very forward-thinking engineers uh, who were looking for ways to change their methodologies and then also selling basically enterprise uses um, or enterprise licenses for the use of this data into the power companies. And the challenges there were very, very similar to what you're used to. Um, polls with asset IDs, it, different asset IDs in different systems, right? <laughs> um, exactly. Uh, process engineers and people used to doing things in a particular way. We did eventually, with the help of these very forward-thinking customers, change the IEEE specifications. We actually rewrote the standards for analyzing the effects of lightning on power distribution systems um, and other things like grounding, uh, lightning arrestor specifications, that kind of thing. And so and, then, and so what do you do? What do you do now? What's the, the practical application of your skill set today? <laughs> well, um, I didn't really want to stay in that specific industry because I ended up, uh, we ended up getting purchased by a big name company that really did not see the value in what they were selling. I had been successful at selling enterprise licenses to the data. And the company that bought us out said, we think we're in the software business. We're a sensor manufacturer. We're not in the data information business. And what was that? And How long ago was that? Oh, that was, you know, 2008, some, somewhere in then. 
somewhere in there. And so I went from, I didn't really want to go back into that environment. So from there, I started doing consulting um, on a project basis with um, other companies that I could find that really understood that the value was in the processing algorithms actually (laughs) for the data and the knowledge of how to use that data in an operational setting. And I still feel that way. Um, And there aren't too many companies that understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I spent quite a few years um, on a contract basis, for instance, with an exploration company that does geophysical surveys. They both manufacture survey equipment and um, do the data interpretation. They clearly understand that they are in the data collection and information processing business. Um, But they had interesting competitors that are very similar to a lot of the things that we like to bitch about in Discord, which is um, the marketing mania that is deliberately deceptive. Right. Um, Right. So this particular company had um, a main company, um, I would say a main competitor that was being deliberately deceptive. They were doing it in a way that created a false narrative about a false um, differentiation with what they were doing. It was basically complicating what was a common uh, geophysics uh, practice. And and I helped this particular company essentially rebrand based on being honest, which is an outrageous thought when you you think about it, right? so from there, I've, I've kind of um, moved around from work, work project to work project, but not really finding the kind of work that I wanted to be working on. And so about two and a half, two and a half three years ago, I started sending myself to trade shows and conferences, <laughs> IoT conferences, which I had friends thought that was a weird hobby. Um, (laughs) I was really trying to find out what the state of the industry really was. I wanted to. And what, what did you, what did you discover? What did you discover? I I discovered that I have a really good BS meter and (laughs) (laughs) apparently, uh, which Mm -hmm. was interesting because I, I do not code. I do not come from a background that an integrator background, although I was certainly assisting my clients in working through the challenges of integrating the data so they could use it in real time. That was my goal. Um, I don't come from a coding background. Um, So I have experience being that business analyst liaison for software development, but I I don't do the code. So I had kind of this general knowledge of the whole stack, but what I had was an understanding of how the real-time integrated use of the data could improve operations in all sorts of industries. And that was what I did not find anywhere on any trade show floor. The, big name co- the bigger the company, the less they understood what the heck I was talking about. I mean, I did run into Canary, La- Canary there. There was an occasional experience where I had had an intelligent conversation with somebody who understood what was going on. 
And that was pretty much what I suspected, actually, that the marketing hype didn't fit the real world reality at that point. Mm -hmm. So I was at that point really looking for people who were actually doing this work. And that's when I started following your videos. That's when I found you. And I think I sent you an early uh, YouTube message that said, ah, oh, I found my tribe. <laughs> <laughs> These people know what they're talking about. I get it. So I was really, really excited when you started the Discord because it gives me a chance to learn like everybody else there from other people who are actually working on real world projects or at least get the real world understanding. And so, and, and by the way, you've been a very valuable member of the, you've been, you know, when we talk about the community, most of the time we're talking about now, we're talking about the discord community. We're talking about, um, we're talking about um, the members of mentorship and mastermind, right? We're talking about that community, but pre discord, which was really the end, you know, Q4 of last year. Um, pre-Discord, that community was the YouTube community and the LinkedIn community, right? And it still is to this day. I mean, that's still the medium through which we do all the mass publishing of information and education. You've been part of, you were part of that previous, you know, you're one of the original members of the community, both in on LinkedIn and through YouTube. And your contribution has been in, invaluable to the rest of the community, not, not and invaluable to me because many of your comments have helped prompt future videos that we've shot. Um, oh wow! <laughs> you know, like there are quite there are statements you've made or questions you've asked, or more thought experiments that you have spawned that caused us to shoot a response. You know, to the to that like statement, the, like the DTNA questions. Correct. Exactly. You've, you've had a, a value and in, in, you know, you've made, you've been an invaluable contributor to the community, but l let me ask you this, Cheryl, what's the biggest thing you've gotten out of the community? Um, this is my favorite question to ask everybody is, you know, we have this vision for what we're trying to do and, and, um, and I'm constantly talking to my team, you know, when we talk about the mentees or we talk about those in mastermind, I'm constantly talking to the team about, you know, I, I want constant feedback from the community. We want to steer the community. We want to steer the content and the education in the direction the community wants to go. That's why I'm always saying, you know, what is their temperature? Is everybody getting value? Constantly asking those questions. But for you, what, what you know, in, in a couple of sentences, right? What's the biggest thing other than finding your tribe? What's the biggest thing that you've you've gotten out of being a member of the community? Well, I'd say it's an offshoot of what you just got through saying, which is, I feel like not only are we answering each other's questions and encouraging each other, but we are collectively changing the dialogue about where IIoT and particularly Industry 4.0 is going. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I think you know, collectively, collectively, as we speak, reflecting ideas off of each other, we are we are changing our perceptions. I often joke, I often comment to my team that the community is basically thousands of people that we are constantly doing peer review with. That that's I, I often make yes. that joke that I'm constantly, you know, the community is just thousands of like-minded people. It's not an echo chamber. There's lots of disagreements. You know, it's, it's, uh, 
but it's this, it's like-minded thinkers who share similar values. And I, that's what I want to touch on here yes. in a second. That Yes, and I, I found that. Yeah, where we're constantly in peer review. You know, you were talking about the the big the big companies. You know, one of the things that I, I don't say very often, but it is something I believe and I think, I say it to clients quite a bit. The fundamental difference or the fundamental problem with the big, the way that most industrial automation companies approach data is that they they approach your data, the the consumer's data, as a commodity that they can monetize. So they that's the approach that they have. They do not approach um, your raw data as a value add True. of the service they are already providing. They don't right. approach it that way. They approach it as your data is a commodity that I can monetize. And that's the approach that they take to providing solutions. And you were talking about you know, how some organizations you know, just basically you know, they're, they, they do things they shouldn't, they shouldn't do. Um, or they, they, they intentionally misrepresent the facts. Here's a really good example of that. And I, and I have no problem dropping names. So I will. And the company's MuleSoft, they're owned by, um, Salesforce. Everybody should be familiar with MuleSoft. I actually like MuleSoft's, uh, basically middleware connectivity platform. I actually like it quite a bit. I, I think it's uh, high value, too expensive, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of MuleSoft's offering, but not as the hub in, um, of your industry, industrial eco, uh, ecosystem. Right. Right. Um, I see it in, I see that it has a place for integration of the legacy stack, right? You can use MuleSoft to do aggregation and then through a gateway layer, you can get it into your industry 4.0 infrastructure, Right. I, we were two, two times now in the last like six weeks, MuleSoft has intentionally changed or the, whoever's selling MuleSoft to a client has intentionally changed their slide deck to use terminology that they know the customer will react positively to, but is, but there's no relationship between that terminology and what MuleSoft is providing, right? We see this all the time wow. with you know, IIoT and industry 4.0 and report by exception and edge driven. I've seen this multiple times in the last six weeks now where MuleSoft has done presentations for multiple customers and multiple clients that we work with who they've then given me the presentation to say, is this true? And I've had to say, no, this is not true. What they said here, this is simply, um, they're literally, they just slapped that word on there. They just slapped that word. They had, there's no relationship between what they presented to your executive leadership and the truth. Um, and, right. and by the way, I'm, I'm not picking on MuleSoft here. They're the ones at the top of my head. Listen, there's, I can give you a hundred examples. We all can give a hundred examples of, right. of, of, of seeing that type of thing in the space. So, um, all right. With that, Cheryl, we're going to ask you to stay on the call and I'm going to answer all the questions and then um, and, and please feel free to chime in, uh, on any specific subject that I'm, I'm going to cover. Is there anything you want to part with before I switch over to the Q and A? The value is in the data and to dovetail off what you just got through saying, I was watching and I hate to pick on OSI soft again, too, because a lot of people depend on it, Yep. but in the bigger picture, 
think about what it says that they talk about pie assets, pie event framework, pie tags, right? Pie mm -hmm. history. It's your tags, your history, your assets, your data. Yep. And and, so the, and that's right. The that they want that, that they want to commoditize. That they yes, yes. And so the whole structure of their software frameworks is built on that kind of perception. And this is where we get when we when you want to talk about solution centered versus technology driven. That's what we're meaning. We're, we're saying exactly. that if, if, if you're solution centric, you're, 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 what you're doing is you're creating an environment where that solutions provider gets to commoditize your data for their, their benefit. And you know, people use all sorts of terminology, vendor lock-in, uh, holding your data hostage, all those kinds of things. I mean, trust me, in my career, I have seen some absolutely crazy stuff. I mean, from integrators who write PLC code, who do the runoff and then pull the comments out of the PLC code after FAT. Wow. I mean, I've seen that kind of stuff all the way to, you know, the installation of scareware by mm. integrators. I mean, you've heard the story I've told a million times to, you know, the, the business practices of lots of different solutions providers. So um, anyway, let me, um, I, I appreciate you jumping on and let me, um, I'm going to cut over and we'll start uh, answering the questions. So for those of you who joined late, you'll notice we have a Groove Epic, Groove Epic in front of us on top of a couple of Phoenix contact IO boxes. Uh, this, the, this video is not sponsored by Opto22. In fact, this, this uh, Groove Epic here was purchased for a project. Um, you know, Benson, those guys didn't, didn't, you know, there's no sponsorship or anything who, going who, on here. Who sponsors this? This this video is sponsored by our digital mastermind and mentorship program and viewers um, like you and viewers like you. Oh, Thank well, you. which is from viewers like you, you guys, the community. Um, so, all right, let me uh, grab slide deck here. All right. So we we met with Cheryl. Um, it's an it's an honor to have you on, Cheryl. You're a very valuable and well-respected member of the community. Thank, Thank you for you. joining us. Um, just a quick reminder, we're still shooting module two for frameworks. Uh, I pointed this out last week that we, with, with the final updates that came from Tatsoft, we can now do that. Um, did everybody, or I don't want to say everybody, but hopefully people went and checked out the new release of the Intelligence Hub. I did a bunch of testing of it last weekend. Man, the new features are pretty badass. Um, there's a couple of things. I We had some back and forth with Highbyte on, um, you know, querying, um, using uh, basically parameters in the namespace to build dynamic queries. That's really cool. But um, hopefully you guys had a chance to, uh, to, to check it out. All right, let me go to our live Q&A here. Rafi asked if, if we could put on the hat. Oh, yeah, where is the, um, yeah, do me that. Yeah, do me a favor, go out and find Josh and find out from Tanya. Thank you, where All right, thank you Rafi. Thanks, Rafi, I forgot. I just got back into town. Um, yeah, so we're in our conference room today. Uh, hey, but Walker said that this was going to be weird. Uh, do you guys think this is weird or would you guys like to see us doing more content like this? Yeah, this is really actually uncomfortable for me. It's oh, like I, I'm out of my... I thought you were going to say you liked it. No, I'm out, of, I'm, out of, no I'm out of my element. I feel okay. disconnected. You know what I mean? It is different, um, yeah. 
All right. So Mark, we're going to answer Mark's last comment from last week. Um, we got a lot of positive feedback on the approach last week. So I'm actually, I, I would like to do, yeah, there we go. Excellent. So Rafi did send us the hats. I'm going to go ahead and change my hat here. On air engineering. Oh, nice. Right. They look really good. Where's, uh, where's he, Rafi, where are you based? Uh, middle, middle, East. middle East somewhere, right? Excellent. This is my man. Excellent. Is it Pakistan? Yes. Hey, y'all make sure one of those makes its way to South Carolina. <clears throat> he sent a couple of them. All right. So this video is sponsored by Quan Air, Quan Air Engineering. That's the actual sponsor. Um, all right. So let's 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 answer Mark's uh, question here. So industrial automation and control may look something like this in a few decades, but you have to temper your wild enthusiasm with realism. So what he, he's responding to the future of industrial controls video where we're talking about, you know, what does the sensor of the future look like, right? And and let me let me say this before I I respond. I had this conversation with a client the other day, and it was when I made this statement that the bells started ringing, that there, I, I, was, I was meeting with the board of directors for a very, very large organization, so a global organization. And the board, I was meeting with two, both boards, their European parent company, so the chief executive officer, the CFO, chief operating officer, I think the CTO was on there, and then their US-based board of directors for the subsidiary that operates in the in the U.S. Actually, I had two meetings like this in the last two weeks, but um, and both was a European parent company with a U.S.-based operation. And when I was doing, when I was asking the questions during um, the meeting to the executive leadership group, I I was talking about digital transformation and its practical meaning for manufacturers, and it basically boils down to this: digital transformation. So is all about taking an industry 3.0 company, an, a company that's got automation and lots of siloed data and transforming them into an industry 4.0 company where data is democratized. It's all about, we've, we've put in an infrastructure to get the data that people need, data and information they need to the people who need it, when they need it, where they need it, and the form they need it. That's digital transformation in a nutshell. But what the statement that I made that really, the, where the light bulbs went off was when I said that digital transformation is about taking industry 3.0 companies that manufacture products and transforming them into technology companies who make products. So that's the fundamental difference. The fundamental difference, in, and I, there's another comment in here where I'll address this, is that the, the bleeding edge, not even bleeding edge man, um, manufacturers, just the leading manufacturers in the world are all see themselves now as technology companies that leverage real-time data to drive the decision-making um, from the plant floor to the boardroom in real time. That's, that's how they see themselves. They see themselves as technology companies who make products. Legacy organizations see themselves as manufacturers who make products. And so they'll always, you know, just like what Mark said last week, well, there's nothing wrong with the way that we're doing it. And I would argue, yeah, there is. There's a lot wrong with the way that you're doing it. And if and if and the young engineers who work at your facility are going to figure out that you are, you know, you're rife for competition and some, you know, or some executives going to break off and they're going to create an, a, a competing company 
that does in fact leverage company, uh, leverage data and information in real time to drive decision-making. And that, and that's how the landscape changes, right? People identify an, an opening in the market and they go after it. And what they do is they use technology to give as the tool, as the lever to, you know, exponentially increase their, um, you know, their ability to compete. An interesting fact here, you guys, um, you know, I'm going to proselytize here for a second. I thought you were going to bring up Tesla again. No, I'm not going to, I won't mention Tesla once, but um, what is one of, what is the single greatest impact that the internet age has had on the economy um, um, across the world? The technology age, the fact that we can, you know, through smartphones and through the internet, we can connect ourselves to everyone and every piece of knowledge that we want to get connected to. What is the single greatest impact it's had on our economy? It's created new businesses. So you want to, when you, there's an interesting article I just read the other day about how today, if you want, if you see an opportunity in the market, there, the, 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 the legacy infrastructure that used to be in place to keep you from emerging and competing, that has been evaporated through the internet and technology. You can get to the market that you want to sell to overnight. Right. Any person can get to the market. Any person can get to the people who need what they have to pro provide. And so what that done is that, that has skyrocketed the creation of companies new companies that are competing in the market. The, the technology, digital transformation for legacy manufacturers is all about being able to fight off that competition. Yeah. Go ahead. You were uh, going to say something. Well, someone said, um, oh, like, you know, I was listening to the stock thing and they're like, hey, I want growth stocks, but I want any growth stock except Tesla. And then they were saying, basically, you can't really have a, a diversified portfolio without owning Tesla because Tesla has the single advantage that like they could put all your other holdings out of like they they put the they're they are actually putting your other holdings at risk of going out of business by you know competing against them so you kind of almost have to own Tesla as a as a hedge except Tesla gives away their technology um, Tesla isn't looking to crush the market Tesla Elon Musk is looking to teach the existing auto manufacturers, what, what it is that they've been doing wrong for the last 30 years. Um, that's what he's been, that's literally what he's doing. He's, he's literally smacking them across the face over and over and over again and saying, you know, your hubris, your hubris is going to kill your company. That's literally what he's doing over and over and over again. Um, all right. So let me answer Mark's question here. So industrial automation and control may look something like this in a few decades, but you got to temper your wild enthusiasm with realism. Everything that I say here isn't theoretical, Mark. That's the first thing I would say. Everything that we're trying to teach and everything we communicate isn't on a theoretical level. What we're doing is taking, we're taking our practical knowledge and we are communicating it in a way that the layman can understand. That's what we're doing. There's nothing about, my enthusiasm is a function of results. It's not a function of a vision. It is, it's a function of this is real and more people need to be doing it. That's, that's where it's coming from. It's not raw enthusiasm. He said, no industrial plant is going to rip and replace all of their production sensors and control devices just so it can report non-critical data like its temperature 
or firmware revision to a unified database. Three points here. Number one, we're not suggesting you rip and replace. What we're suggesting is, is you have a plan to integrate your dumb sensors and a plan for um, deploying smart sensors in the future. That's the, that's the parallel path. You got to have a chance. You have to have an opportunity to take those, those analog, the dumb analog signals from old sensors and convert them to smart signals into an infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You got it. That's one part of the strategy. The other part of the strategy is what smart sensors are we going to do use in the future? What specification are we going to write? What minimum technical requirements are we going to use? What is our infrastructure going to look like? So that in the when we spec a machine in the future, this is for Jeff Rankin and his students who are watching. When you're specking a piece of machinery in the future, you're asking the question, how does this machine fit into the customer's ecosystem? How are they going to consume all of the raw data? And how is this machine going to consume the context that's created from that raw data, right? So for the, the professionals that Jeff, Jeff Rankin and at Penn Tech are in his students that are watching today, you know, what is your future going to look like? You're the, the way, what is your job going to look like? When you guys are building machines after you graduate from school, you're going to be building machines that are going to solve two concurrent problems. The functional specification and sequence of operation that you're looking at when you're building the machine and automating it. And how does that machine fit into the digital strategy of the organization who purchased it? Right now, that second statement is what's missing for all of the legacy organizations. But if you go to organizations like Tesla and Amazon and you know, all of the most advanced companies who don't let us say their names. If you go to those companies, they're asking the question of their OEMs, what is the technology you support and how is it going to plug into our infrastructure? And they are giving them a specification for how that should happen. Um, there, it bother, all the other thing is, is that um, the data is non-critical. You call it non-critical data. It may be non-critical to process engineers, but it is critical data to data scientists. So, Again, the, for Mark McMillan, you don't decide which data is important for the entire organization. At a minimum, you have to acknowledge that that data that there is data that you don't think is important that someone else is going to think is important, and that's why you can't make assumptions about how it'll be consumed. And last, the unified namespace is not a database. It's a very important point. The unified namespace is the structure of the organization and all of the events. The the, the, the value and the timestamp for every data transition. The cost is vastly prohibitive and the benefit is only theoretical. It's not theoretical. Um, the, again, we're not operating in theory here. We're operating, we're, we're teaching the market how it is that we approach problems for our clients. That's all we're doing. Um, and we're hoping to get them, we're trying to get the market to stop making the mistakes we keep seeing everyone make. <laughs> That's the big thing. Um, so, but we're not proposing that you change all the sensors. It's more likely that new installations will incorporate these components on an as needed basis. You're right. They will, the new installations will incorporate these components, um, but not on an as needed basis. Well, everything's um, as needed. Right. I mean, it, it, that, that is who, who decides that it's needed. If Mark McNim, if Mark McMillan, your process engineer is deciding whether or not a smart sensor is needed, well, then you're going to have, have a lot less smart sensors because obviously he doesn't think that that data is very important. But that's the reason that he's a process engineer and he's not the chief technical officer for the organization. And I don't mean that. Process engineers are important. I don't mean that Mark's role isn't important. What I'm saying is, is that Mark is not tasked with 
strategy for the mm. business, right? Digital transformation is a decision that gets made by the strategists. They're the ones who decide that this is our plan for the future. And then the rest of the organization has to figure out a way to take that strategy and make it a reality. So, and again, I don't want anyone to mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not diminishing Mark's role or his value to his organization. I'm responding here because clearly he's, you know, he's a smart guy. He's, I, he's got his bona fides. I don't respond to people who I, I don't think are, you know, legitimate professionals. So, um, but he said, I've worked on several greenfield facilities in the past three years, and I've seen zero IIoT or 4.0 or such ideas impl implemented. That doesn't surprise me because you're not the type of process engineer that that organization, an organization would hire if they are doing digital transformation. If you look at the end of our, and again, I'm not diminishing, I'm saying Mark is, a, is firmly entrenched in an industry 3.0 mindset. That doesn't make you unique. That makes you a member of the majority, in fact. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, you, that the, the industry 3.0 mindset is the, is the future for manufacturing or even the present. It isn't. It's the past. Um, some companies are developing data lakes, which is a good thing, but even that has been laden with bad design and almost a total lack of comprehension of the value time series data. Couldn't agree with you more. We talk about That's that we see time. it all the time. Totally agree with you. Think about this in terms of industry 3.0. Believe it or not, there are still, still some facilities running equipment with local electro pneumatic controllers or isolated PLCs. And there are perhaps thousands of vintage PLCs and DCSs running in the US alone. Many of these were commissioned before I was working in industry over 30 years ago. That represents uh, billions of dollars in infrastructure. I wish we could get more of them to rip and replace. It's a good commentary. Here's, um, uh, stop sharing for a second. Uh, yeah. As Rafi said, when we're, when we're doing like a side banter, I want to make a point on that because <clears throat> while he's focusing on getting like that PLC replacement job, he walks into a facility and says, oh my gosh, you have a PLC five. We should upgrade that to a control logics. And he sees money, but the plant's not actually doing that because they're not, they're, they're going to see it running the same way as it did before, except now it supports native ethernet. The way to get them to upgrade is, and the way to transition to 4.0 is going with a brownfield implementation put in an edge gateway, start unlocking that potential out of that legacy device. And then actually, then you can see where the value is to be created within that line or within that process in order to justify investing capital in the PLC upgrade. The reasons, the justification for upgrading select legacy infrastructure. And by the way, I, I would never suggest that a manufacturer should rip out all their sensors, rip out all their PLCs and upgrade everything to bleeding edge technology. I would never make that suggestion, but I would make that suggestion on a case by case basis. There may be processes where the return on investment is there to do a rip and replace, but almost certainly the, the answer is going to be using some type of edge gateway to integrate the, the legacy system and then use um, new hardware and instrumentation that supports your minimum technical requirements for your future implementations. That isn't what's happening though, okay? Rockwell Automation is not selling innovative technology, right? I mean, Rockwell is selling the same fucking PLCs today that they were selling 20 years ago when I worked at Nucor Steel. The, the control logics platform that I can buy today is the same control logics platform that I could buy 20 years ago. Um, 
Well, the price and, has gone up. Yeah, and but the, let's use the Groove Epic here. And by the way, this is again where I'm not being paid to do this. They're not, Opto 22 is not um, has not sponsored this video. But let's let's take a look at let's contrast the Groove Epic, which is a, a PLC that you can use for greenfield implementation, so that I can literally ship any piece of equipment. IIoT ready and not be lying to my customer. I could slap IIoT ready onto the Groove Epic and I'm not lying. Everybody else slaps IIoT ready and they're lying, or most people are. There are dual processors running on here. Okay. So you've got a you've got a, a one quad core processor that is running the PLC side of the, the uh, of this implementation. And there is another quad core processor that is running the edge computer that's running here. Okay. There's a Linux based operating system. We can write Python. I can install from Git or any other package manager. I can, I can run green grass on the edge compute side of this. And I have my built-in uh, HMI, which has all the diagnostics for the onboard IO, which I can monitor in real time and publish all the diagnostics from this unit for literally half the cost of the L7 control logics and similar, right? This is a far superior, far superior um, PLC to the control logics platform. It's not even close. And that's not just on the industry 4.0 side. That is on the, that is on the industry 3.0 side as well. Yeah. Okay. This right here for Mark McMillan is why am I not shipping all of my equipment with Opto 22 Group Epics? Why am I not using Bedrock Automation TLC? Why don't we mention Bedrock? Well, often. again, so in your in your critical infrastructure, in energy, so in in Cheryl's experience with you know power generation and in energy, security is of the uh, you know that's that, that that's critical infrastructure that gets targeted by hackers. You know the Bedrock Automation makes a um, a PLC line, you know, that uses military encryption and no, you know, no backlane contact. I mean, just absurd levels of security in the PLC platform, but with the same basic minimum technical requirements that the Opto 22 meets, right? It's a, think of it as the Opto 22 is your mid-range. The bedrock solution is the high end. If you want to spend, you got money to burn. And then PLC next, Wago, Siemens S7-1200, Easy Automation, the list goes on and on and on is, is in your, your low level, um, you know, the, the cheap process, um, process control. But the reality is, is that all around your organization is the justification for digital transformation. The problem is, is that that justification is not unified into one document. You know, I, it's like, I've got a process engineer who wanted to solve a problem who can't because we didn't use the right technology he, that that's a justification for why we need to do this. And I've got a quality engineer who has, wants to solve a problem but can't because we didn't pick the right, the right technology or we don't have the right infrastructure. I've got data scientists who can't solve a problem because the, the reasons are everywhere, but they're not unified. That is, there isn't a big long list of all the opportunity lost, all the opportunity lost because we made the wrong strategic decisions or we're lacking a digital strategy or we're using the wrong technology or we've been partnering with the wrong organizations. So, you know, that's a long answer to a short question, but it is, it is fundamental and core to why it is that there are organizations who believe 
digital transformation is not important. It just isn't important. And what I would say yeah. is if the collection and analysis of data is not important, okay, let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, it isn't important, then why are the most valuable organizations on the planet all data companies? Yep. Why are they all companies who do nothing but collect and analyze data? And, I mean, and that goes to Tesla, by the way. Tesla is the most valuable automotive manufacturer on the planet, and they achieve that in just a short two-year window. You know, you should watch the chart as, as how quickly they grew. The reason why is because the market understands there's only one automotive manufacturer who's got all the data right now, and it's Tesla. They're the ones who are collecting everything, literally everything. All right, sorry. Off my soapbox. Sorry, Zach. Nicholas asks, what about safety PLCs? Are there any 4.0 PLCs that support safety IO and processing? The answer is yes, and we're going to shoot. We'll shoot a video. to. There's a several of them that we'll go through. Jeff Rankin said, thank you for the help. You're welcome, Jeff. All right, so uh, Oguzan Ukar, I apologize here. This is a, a comment on the how to implement OEE. Thanks for the great videos. I got a couple of questions. Don't you think that combining OEE of different product technology manufacturer facilities, or even different Galenic form of product manufacturing lines, making no sense in terms of OEE and be a reason of losing its meaning. Basically what he's saying is, don't you think that combining the OEE data for disparate types of processes uh, essentially devalues the OEE calculation? That's what he's saying. And number two, what is the method of combining OEE results from different lines of facilities? Jeff, your team, your students will probably appreciate this answer. I'm actually going to do a little lesson here real quick. Simple, average, weighted, thanks in advance. All right, so for me to answer this question, let's, I wanna, let's do OEE in layman's terms, okay? All right, what is, OEE is overall equipment effectiveness, but in a nutshell, if somebody wants to ask you why it's important, this is the answer, okay? OEE is a standard efficiency calculation for production equipment, okay? It takes into account the availability of a piece of equipment the quality of the goods produced by the equipment, the goods or the parts, and the rate of production of the equipment to determine whether the equipment is operating effectively or not. If you're an executive, you want to know which of my assets are most effective. And, and, and sometimes the KPI there isn't just how much does that machine cost me to run and how much money it generates, okay? There is, there's other value from the equipment and there's other ways to calculate it, right? Um, what OEE does is it's a valuable calculation because what it does is it abstracts away the differences between equipment, leaving us with a key performance indicator that can be used to contrast unlike equipment and processes in an apples to apples comparison. So if I've got an OEE number of 89%, and I've got an OEE number of 95%, I know that the machine that's got the 95% OEE number is the more effective machine at producing our, um, or at, in our operation, okay? So OEE is basically three calculations. It's on a scale of zero to 100%, so zero to one. And then it is calculated by multiplying together three other numbers that are on a scale of a zero to 100 or, or zero to one. So you take availability, that is what percentage of the time was that machine available to run, it wasn't down, multiplied by the quality, the percentage of the parts that it produced that were good and could be sold, times the performance, how many parts did, when it was available, 
how many parts did it produce compared to how many it should have produced. So you calculate availability by taking the total uptime of a machine in minutes. Generally, we do this in minutes or seconds. And you divide it by the scheduled runtime. A low availability number reveals maintenance issues. And so you can go yell at the maintenance manager, okay? Or you could yo go yell at the OEM or you know the tooling manufacturer. Quality is the total number of good parts or whatever it is that you make, batches, parts, subassemblies. It's the total number of good divided by the total number that you produced, okay? If you have a low quality number, that reveals raw material, OEM issues, engineering issues. There's lots of other, there's lots of reasons why you might have poor quality. Performance is the total parts you produce. We, we, what we want to do is you want to get everything into the, into the parts. So performance, there's a couple of different ways to calculate. I'm doing this in layman's terms. So the, when we do a final performance calculation, what we do is we, conf, we convert everything into parts um, and then we do the, the calculation there. So it's the total number of parts that we actually produced divided by the total number that we should have produced based on whatever our standard rate was and how many minutes we, we were available to run. So if I can produce 100 parts per minute and my machine was available for 10 minutes, then I should have produced 1,000 parts. If I produced 900 parts, I divide 900 by 1,000 and my performance number was 90%. Now, you get to that, there are some other equations that you have to go through before you get to that final division, okay? Here, here is an example of how OEE is presented to operators, to supervisors. There are a couple of different dashboards here. What you're looking at here is a snapshot of a run OEE dashboard that we presented in a tier one automotive supplier. So availability, performance and quality for an OEE number scrap is 100% minus whatever the quality number is. And then this is, and that this is in a, uh, um, an assembly line, okay? This is the same dashboard, availability of 56%, performance of 85%, quality of 99% for an OEE number of 47%. And that's on a printing press. I can look at these two dashboards. I'm the executive of the company. I've got two divisions. One division is making parts for automotive suppliers. Another division is printing paper. And I can look at this dashboard and I know immediately which of, the, which of these assets is more efficient. It's more effective for my business. And the answer is, it's this one, the assembly machine. This printing press, its OEE number is 47% because it has a lot of downtime. It's only been available for 56% of the time that it was scheduled to run. Whereas this one has an OE number 86% and it also availability is the reason that it, the number was driven down. It was only available 89% of the time, okay? So OEE is a valuable calculation because it allows us to compare unlike processes in an apples to apples comparison for effectiveness. Now, lots of organizations try to do their own type of OE calculation, you know, production efficiency. O -O -E -O -A or... Yeah, OE, OA, uh, PE. There's lots of different calculations out there. Why are we an OEE? Why do we advocate for OEE? The answer is 
is OEE doesn't just give you the yardstick. It also gives you the direction you're supposed to go to solve the problem. That's the biggest, the biggest piece. When you see a low OEE number, the next thing you do is drill down to the subcomponents. Well, what's driving my OEE number down? It's the availability. And now what I do is I double click on that availability and I go, I can look at a Pareto chart that shows me the top five reasons that that machine was down. And maybe the top five reasons is number one is um, 80% of the, yeah, no, the number one was 80% of the downtime reasons. Well, now what it's I've got to do is fruit. I got to focus on engineering that out. Okay. That's why OEE matters. It's it of all the KPIs that we see in the industry, it is the one that does the most the, the most effective job of comparing completely unlike processes. To answer his second part, what is the best way to combine? So let's say I want to I have multiple machines and I'm moving up to the next level. We answered this question for Mario um, yeah. a couple months ago. The answer is is Way that right? The answer is is that when you get to the upper level, you want to get the data back into its raw form and recalculate. So you want to be doing uh, area total uptime divided by area scheduled runtime to get the area availability. You don't want to be averaging OEE calculations that you did at lower levels together, either in a weighted format. You, what you want to do is get back to that raw data when you rerun it. So the way that we do it is we come up with an aggregate total uptime and an aggregate scheduled runtime for all the machines and then we recalculate that new availability number. We do the same thing for total good parts, total parts produced, okay? Now, in quality and in performance, this can get tricky because you gotta get things into the same unit of measure, okay? So it can get, it can get tricky at the area level or at the enterprise level. So there is, no one, there is no one tried and true way to do it. If you wanna know what's the best way to do it, so that it gives you the, the best comparison it is getting the 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 raw elements of the calculation back to their base their base value and aggregated okay um let me go back here hopefully that was helpful okay henning asked the question this is a good question henning um at the company where i work there's some discussion what the scope of industry 4.0 actually is for example cobots virtual reality augmented reality industry 4.0 topics that belong in an industry 4.0 strategy, they do. I was planning to write an internal paper that should help us define industry 4.0 and focus on the aspect of generating insights and improving the business by turning data into information in order to make better decisions. I wanted to use some examples of companies that started their business as an industry 4.0 company from the beginning. Walker likes to mention Tesla being able to tell how much each individual car costs when it rolls off the line. I'd be happy to have similar success stories that I could back up with articles or official statements if someone asks me for my sources. All right. So the challenge I have is that. Um, you want to stop sharing? Yeah. The challenge I have here, Henning, is nearly every company I mention is a company we work with. So if I generate, you know, um, I, I mean, maybe occasionally I bring up somebody who's not an actual client of ours or something, but I'm only, you know, here's the business side of things. We have to sign non-disclosure agreements with basically everyone we, you know, every client we work with makes us sign an NDA and the, the terms of those NDAs vary. Um, 
every vendor we work with, we have to sign an NDA because our clients make us sign NDAs with everyone we're working with, okay? Every customer that I mentioned by name, I'm doing that because they've given us explicit permission to share that we're working with them and that we can, and that we've provided some value for them. Every customer that I've shared any information about. The challenge, here's the biggest challenge you have. Most industry 4.0 companies, companies who collect all data, right? And they get the information that people need into their hands in the form they need it, when they need it, how they need it. That is their competitive advantage. And until the rest of the market comes along, they don't want anyone knowing that that's their advantage. That they don't want to be the reason that their competitors decide to invest this capital and improve their operations. So they, they, if you want to know who the most guarded organizations are, they're the ones who are either already digitally transformed or they, they're a new company who was built from the ground up as an industry 4.0 organization, right? Tesla is a unique animal because Elon Musk didn't create Tesla because he wanted to become a billionaire. He already was a billionaire and then he spent all of his money on Tesla and SpaceX, right? He did both to save humanity, all right? Money is not his thing. That's not what he cares about. But most organizations, whether we like it or not, are profit-driven, and they, you know, in most organizations aren't going to do their competitors any favor you know, by sharing their competitive advantage. So the challenge we have, Henning, is how do we, and, 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 and by the way, I would love feedback on this. How do we communicate what's possible to organizations publicly if we can't share what it is people have already done? So I walk, I go ahead, Cheryl. Um, you were, it looked like you were going to say something. I am. I interrupted you. You're, uh, you're on mute. Cheryl, you're on mute. Well, I'm not according to my camera. You're still on mute. I can hear her. Hi. Oh, we lost her. Yeah, I Do can you hear you, Cheryl. All the way down? I, no, I know. I, I, oh. I'm not on yeah, mute I, here. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Cheryl. No. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Well, you are speaking about a universal problem. You can't write use cases without uh, intimate industry knowledge of their particular competitive advantages. But one way around that is to actually create a potential use case within the company that you're trying to, say, write this report for and create the data model for it. Take something that the company is already doing, map the data flow in and through a UNS up to the analysis portion and back down to the real world uses, so, or decision support uses. In other words, does the company that, um, is this Henning? Yes. I don't know if that's, I yep, don't know if that's your first name or last name, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe you don't care so much what other companies are doing. Maybe you only care about automating and integrating what your own company is already trying to do, but doing inefficiently, not doing in real time. And if you can map that data flow 
in that particular use case, you're going to have a much stronger case. Just an idea. And, and if I remember correctly, and this is a little different for Henning. So uh, Henning is an engineer for a German manufacturer. Um, uh, heating and air, yes. Yeah, they do heating and air. Um, and He's also a member of Mastermind. Right. He's a member of Mastermind and, and uh, Mentorship. And the, the United States, mo most people don't know this. If you, if, you're, if you don't work outside of the United States, like if you've never been to Germany or France to see how, or Denmark or, you know, um, to see how European manufacturers operate, one of the fundamental differences between U.S. manufacturing and European manufacturing is that in Europe, manufacturing by and large is subsidized by the government. You know, when we talk about mm. um, socialism, you know, and I'm not saying European countries are socialists, but they have more socialist ideals, right? Socialism is all about government owning the means of production. So production is a little different in, in Europe. Production, that is, production is while, not king? Well, while government doesn't necessarily own the manufacturers 100% outright, they, they play a much bigger role in the decisions that manufacturers in Europe make. They're, they're driven, they're, the government has a, a role in manufacturing. Whereas in the States, it's really not that way. It, you know, in the States, it's really much more free market. And, you know, and I don't want to get into a debate which one's better. I'm not sure which one's better, if I'm being honest with you. I have no idea. But what I do know <laughs> is that being much more free market drives innovation. So, you, you know, people put, you know, put every dollar they've ever earned on the line to turn a competitive advantage into, into profit down the road. In, in Europe, it's a little different. In Europe, it's, you see a lot less of that risk-taking. It's, it, so one of the challenges that I have is when I get that question from, say, a European engineer, well, how do I get my, my you know, bosses to buy into this? Well, remember, <laughs> they answer, they're not just answering to the consumer. They're not just answering to the market. They're also answering to, you know, a, a much higher layer. Um, Some agency, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're answering to an agency. I think of Airbus. Airbus would be a perfect example. Right. It's so, a conglomerate of European countries. And But I want to go back to Cheryl's point here. Ra I, I like to say this, Henning, and this is, this would be my answer to you. If you're, if you're going to try and win the theoretical battle, over and over and over again. If you're going to want to win the battle of theory, you're going to you're going to lose to the person who's more politically adept than you are. Okay? Mm. So if what you want to do, if your goal is to win the theoretical battle rather than focusing on the results war, then you're going to spend years and years and years fighting with people, you know, with bureaucrats who are very good at navigating the political waters of large organizations. What we try to do is we try, in, when we're helping organizations digitally transform, we try to focus on value upfront. So that what that means is design an architecture, pick a use case and solve a problem in a very controlled environment that gets you to lay the, frown, the foundation, the framework of your infrastructure at the same time, in parallel, solving an, a problem that a that a, a client has, and what and what's happening is you're I don't want to say you're sneaking the infrastructure in, but you're you're the infrastructure is being installed um, underneath a solution you're developing. 
Yeah. And it is, it's very, very difficult. It's a horse. Yeah. It's very difficult with people to argue against results. Um, it, it, it's, it's, but it is very easy to argue against your theoretical position. It's very easy. Um, especially when it goes against the status quo. Correct. It's you, you're, you're going to be able to, they're going to be able to pop up, throw barriers up in front of you all day long. Um, what you need to do Henning in, in, or anyone in your position, you need to find a use case within your organization to prove out your theory. That's what you need to do rather than writing a white paper, you know, moving up the chain and trying to convince everyone that your idea is right or that your theory is correct. You want to win the results war. Stop fighting the theoretical battles. All right. Um, all right. So we're, we're two minutes over. So how do, how do we want to? So uh, do you I know have a, no, a couple more questions I want to answer. But one of the things that Zach, we wanted to ask the community this. So one of the things that Zach suggested was that we shoot a, light, a whiteboard live at the end of this session. We take a question from the community. I'll put a microphone on. Zach will adjust the camera. And I'll answer the, I'll do the, he'll ask me the question and I'll whiteboard it live and you guys can see it in its raw form. And then that video will be, will be published tomorrow in its finished edited form. And you can see what that looks like. The difference between what I say live and what we actually. I was going to say it's mostly, it's mostly the same, but um, do you know, do you know what, do you know what you want to say? Well, there was a question that Jason Taylor was. Oh yeah. At the end that Jason Taylor asked. Taylor Turner or Taylor Turner. Sorry. I don't know where Jason Taylor. Hold on. Um, so this was the question I was thinking I would answer. Oh, Jay. Yeah. Um, awesome. Would you be willing to discuss the recurring objections and responses for each of the areas when we're doing digital transformation maturity assessments, operations, quality, engineering, maintenance, and leadership? But if, if the community has another question, they'd rather me answer. But is that a good idea to, to try this? I think it's a good idea. Okay. All right. So you want to you put on that... Um on your mic your yeah. mic out ready so is there a question you guys would rather have me answer other than um other than um taylor's question so taylor's question is can you go over the objections that you're getting at each of the layers of the stack um or not each of the layers of the stack the five main core groups that we won't, that we meet with when we're doing a, a dtma um what are the common objections that you're getting at each of those meetings and um, this will actually be good because this kind of leads into the DTMA training that we're doing this month. Anybody else ask a question? They just now got to that part. Oh, no, okay. no, I think they're all right. Yeah, Let's wait. To... Let's give them a chance. Let to they them. just passed the part where you showed the question on screen. Okay. Oh yeah. I, I counted it. We have about a 10 to 15 seconds left. Okay. Taylor rocks. Mike Taylor said, "Go for it." Is yours, is, is it on? Yeah, it's on. Test, test, test. All right, cool. So I'm going to switch over to that one. Can 4K? All right, it should be good now. All right. Good. So you're going to ask the question? You would normally do it? Yeah. Hey, Vaughn, does everything sound okay? Sound is a-okay, yep. Is this a good idea, hopefully? I Yep, Cheryl said, great question, Taylor. Uh, we're innovating, but we need to innovate the camera lens to be a little more clearer on you. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. All right, we, sound, we do sound good, though? 
Yes, yeah, sound is good. Seems like everybody wants that question done. Well, that actually looks really good. All right, so this is what we normally do. Zach will ask me a question. So he would read Taylor's question to me, but basically it'll, he'll say, uh, you know, what are, what are the major, uh, major objections for the five core functional groups within um, the organization when we do TTMA? And then I'll say major objections to digital transformation by cross-functional group take zero, all right? All right, so Taylor asked this question, which is, what are the major uh, objections to digital transformation when you're doing a DTMA? So some quick background, when we do a digital transformation maturity assessment, so if you get- I got to record. <laughs> Zach, right. six and eight. Sorry, I got I to start all over again. What are the, oh, I got to start over again. Okay. All right. I'm glad I noticed. Go ahead and ask the question. So Walker, you've been doing like three or four DTMAs this week. What are the major objections you're getting at each of the five core groups? Excellent. All right. So major objections to digital transformation by cross-functional group take zero. Hey, it's always better. It's always, it's always better the second time around. That's oh, right. It was take one. All right. So quick background. What it, before I answer the question, what is a digital transformation maturity assessment? If you guys look at the iterative process for digital transformation, for getting an industry 3.0 company to become an industry 4.0 company, if you want to know more about that, you'll be able to Watch the video here, we, digital transformation. Uh, what is digital transformation 2021? You can watch it up here, over here, down here, over here. Um, the, the first two steps are inventory of the business and inventory of the intelligence in the organization, okay? And so to do that, we do a digital transformation maturity assessment, which is uh, an engagement where we evaluate an organization top to bottom. And in a nutshell, this is how it works. We meet with five core groups in the organization um, now, this could be at the plant level, it could be at the business unit level, it could be corporate. Sometimes it's a combination of both, but we basically meet with five core groups. Um, we meet with operations. We meet with uh, maintenance and engineering. We meet with the quality group. And we meet with the IT group and we meet with leadership. What I always ask is that I ask the client to schedule the leadership meeting last. Um, and we generally start with engineering and maintenance because they are gonna be the easiest group to handle. They're the ones who are, they wanna innovate more than anyone else in the organization. So that's generally a 90 minute session where we ask, a there's a specific set of questions there's a specific set of questions for each, uh, each group that we ask. Um, in, a, in a nutshell, it's what do you do? What tools do you, digital tools do you currently use to do your job? How do you um, consume data from the edge? How do you adjust to operational changes on the plant floor? How do external consumers access the data that you produce in your system? What are you really good at? What, are, what is your group good at? What is it not good at? What's missing? In a nutshell, those are the types of questions that we're asking. Um, now, from these five core sessions, we end up having breakouts. So there may be, they may talk about some 
piece of software or something that they're using that we want to take a deeper look at. But at the end, what we're doing is we're, we're giving them a maturity assessment as to where are you on your journey, number one, and number two, where are you and where do you want to go and how do you get there? What Taylor wants to know is, is when we're meeting with these individual groups, what are the core objections, questions, um, criticisms that are raised when we do our initial digital transformation presentation? There's like a 10 minute presentation at the beginning. And so I'm gonna answer that group by group, all right? So the, the, core, the core objection from operations, okay? There are two core objections to digital transformation initiatives. Number one, is this the flavor of the month? Okay. So they will ask the question, why should we be invested in um, trying to improve the organization when over the course of my 25 years working here, I, you know, executives have come and gone, engineers have come and gone. They've all, they've all had ideas. They've all implemented uh, tried to implement solutions and they evaporated or they provided no value. Is this the flavor of the month? Number one. And number two, how do I benefit? Okay. So they, they raise those questions. Operations will ask the question, how are we going to benefit from it? And then in my answer, my response to both of them is this, this is not the flavor of the month because this isn't a project. It's not a piece of software. It's not a solution. It's a, it's a fundamental strategy for running the business differently, okay? Digital transformation is a strategy for changing the way that you operate by driving decisions based on real-time data and information, okay? Number two, how do I benefit? Your job gets easier, number one. And number two, you get to focus on the problems that you identified 20 years ago, but you don't e either don't have the manpower or you don't have the time to focus on the real problems. All you're doing is putting out fires. All you're doing is reacting, right? My response to them is, no, it's not the flavor of the month. And the way that you benefit, your job gets easier, okay? It also gets more interesting, okay? When it comes to maintenance and engineering, the objections with maintenance and engineering are very few, okay? This is normally the group that is most excited, okay? It's most excited. They're the ones who stand to benefit immediately from digital transformation far more than any other group in the organization. But the, the, number, one, the number one objection or the number one question that comes up in the maintenance and engineering um, group is, um, how can we trust the data? And what they mean is, um, there are certain organizations, um, well, there are certain organizations that do not trust digital data. Um, there are, for example, I mean, we, we were meeting with a client a few months ago, and one of their process engineers said that a huge piece of her job is to just go confirm that the data, that the digital data that showed up on some report can be trusted. It's true that the results that showed up on the report is actually what happened. So they're using human beings to manually confirm that which you collected automatically, okay? But what they really mean is this. Let's say that the digital data that in, for maintenance and engineering, we're gonna calculate 
there's two values we're going to calculate for these guys. Mean time to repair and mean time between failure. And we're going to do that at two layers. Layer number one is the machine itself. Um, when a machine goes into a downtime event, how long does it take for it, for it to come back to the next rising edge to start running? What's that average? What's the mean? And then mean time between failure is when it starts running, how long does it run before it goes back down? That's mean time between failure. But you also do that in an upper level. And there's an MTTR and there are an MTBF calculations for maintenance uh, personnel and engineering personnel that are is a function of when they started to repair a piece of equipment or start working on a piece of equipment. It's an abstracted value directly above the, the individual machine event. So when you when you, this goes to availability, when a machine is down, you have two things. You have the raw machine data, but then you also have the human data. When, do, when did the... When was the maintenance department notified of the issue? When was engineering notified of the issue? When did someone show up? When someone showed up, how long did it take for them to repair it? Once they had it repaired, when did we resume production? You do MTBF and MTTR at, two, at multiple layers, the machine layer and directly above. And this, this drives concern in maintenance and engineering groups that if they're going to be making very important decisions about the business, about which equipment to make, uh, to invest in, in improving, how can they know that they trust the data? Those, that's the number one question that comes out of maintenance and engineering. The quality group is, the number one objection from the quality group is, um, what do you know about quality? <laughs> They just want to know their bona fides? Yes. All right. So in certain verticals, in certain verticals, the quality group, they, the quality organization or the quality department believes that their organization sells quality. Okay. They, they don't believe that they, they don't think of it as they sell a product, but what they sell is actual pro, pro, uh, quality. If you want to know the two most difficult groups to work with in any organization, it's these groups right here. It's the quality group and it's the IT group. I mean, everybody already knows the IT group because everyone deals with IT, but not everyone deals with quality. The, the way that you have to allay the concern of the quality group is you have to demonstrate to them that you know what it is they actually do, that you know what an actual sample definition is, that you know what the Nelson rules are, that you know what the Westinghouse rules are, you know what, what's the difference between defining what a sample collection is and then what doing a collection is. What's the difference between an upper spec limit and an and a upper control limit? What is a control chart? What's its purpose? You have to demonstrate to the quality group because the quality groups operate as silos all the time. Why? Because the only people in the organization who know anything about the mechanics of quality are the people who work in the quality department. And so the number one objection that they raise is, how can you digitally transform our entire organization if you know nothing about what it is that we do? So the only way that what they do in their department. Got it, got it. So the only way you're gonna overcome that objection is to demonstrate that you know what it is they do in the quality group. And if I just said a bunch of terms like, Nelson rules and Westinghouse rules and upper spec limit and lower spec limit and upper control and lower control. 
um, a sample definition, sample collection, sample interval. If I'm saying all these terms and you don't know what those terms are, understand that you're going to be looking like a deer in headlights when they ask this question in that meeting. Okay. Right. IT. <laughs> what does everyone think that their biggest objection is going to be? How is it secure? <laughs> how, how secure is it? Okay. So, and why can't we use open source or whatever? No, why can't we use X? Okay. All right. So, I'm going to skip the security question here for just a second. One of the top questions that we get in the IT department or the major objection, and I would say in, in digital transformation maturity assessments, um, if I'm going to get yelled at or one of our architects is going to get yelled at in one of these sessions, it's going to be in this session. Okay. Um, Back to you to say that. Right. IT departments, IT departments, they have a monopoly. So one of the questions that I ask in the IT meeting is, do you have a monopoly on IT services in your organization? That's one of the questions. And what I'm asking is, do the people in your organization have the option to, get outside. to go to an outside vendor for their IT solutions as long as they are compliant with your security requirements, okay? If the answer is no, and it's nearly always no, IT normally has a complete monopoly on IT services and infrastructure, then what you, you know that you are dealing with people who have absolute power, okay? And absolute power does what? It corrupts absolutely. corrupts absolutely. Okay. So you know that you're dealing with people who tell you what to happen and you never, you this know. Why the Question number two is I will ask them, are you, what is the, what is the uh, IT department's mandate? And they'll ask me, what do you mean? And I'll say, are you a security and compliance organization or are you a service organization? And they'll say, we're both. And then I'll say, which one are you first? Are you compliance and security first and service second? Or are you service first and compliance and security second? Okay. And it, when they don't, when they want clarification, I may say, do people joke that the chief technical officer is the CT? No. Okay. So, um, you know, do you say no first? Here's one of the things that I will do in, uh, in the IT meeting. I will ask them how long it takes to get a virtual machine spun up um, in your organization. So let's say I want a <laughs> VM spun up so I can install a piece of software, do some testing. And they'll always tell me, by the way, the IT department will always tell me that they can do it in a day. Yeah. And, then I'll, and then I'll say to them, um, but if I go ask somebody on the plant floor how long that'll take, how long do you think they'll tell me? And they'll say, months. oh, three months, you know, <laughs> yeah. six months or whatever. And then what I will do is I will, I will, in that presentation, I will go to Vulture and I will spin up a virtual machine in 90 seconds. Literally in 90 seconds, I will launch a, a virtual machine and, I will, and, I, and that machine will be running while I'm in the middle of explaining to the IT department the, the merits of being a service organization, enabling employees in the organization to do more with less, right? And the IT department... I hear crickets after I spin up that machine in 90 seconds. There's nothing. So what I'll say is that you told me that the best case scenario is I can get it in a day. Your people on the plant floor are telling me it takes three months. You tell me 
how your IT department can compete if I'm, if I'm competing against you and I can do it in 90 seconds. Tell me how you compete. Tell me how you compete. And I'll hear dead silence. Well, because they're a monopoly. Right. They're a monopoly. We don't have to compete. So then well, they'll there, say, there well, was how... that one guy who asked why we would need to spin one up in 90 seconds. <laughs> and, it would, and, I, and I would say, and my answer to him is because you don't know the job that I do. That's why. Um, but here, the how, how secure. So th this is where the how secure is it will come. This is where the four. This is my response is always in this place is the same. There are four fundamental principles of the industry 4.0 infrastructure. Needs to be edge-driven, report by exception, lightweight, and open architecture. Needs to be edge-driven. So if what I want to do is create an infrastructure where I can plug things into um, a, uh, my infrastructure, then I have to make it so that I, I am not going to make my, my plant network insecure. So the reasons that we pick MQTT because it's edge driven is because I can, I can make it so that as long as you give me permission to allow this to connect to this, I don't have to give permission for this to connect to that. I have not created any insecure environment by allowing something on the plant floor to talk out to something at a higher level in the security stack, okay? So when I tell them the four core principles of edge-driven report by exception, lightweight, open architecture, those four things, they speak to two different people. They speak to the IT department, okay? I'm, I'm gonna keep your network secure. I'm also not gonna keep it too busy, okay? And I'm gonna make it accessible, interoperable. But I'm also speaking to the executive leadership team because I'm saying, the other times that your digital transformation initiatives have failed because you hit a critical mass, you couldn't get all the data you wanted, you had to throttle it down because you're trying to pull too much stuff. By using these four core principles, you don't run into that critical mass. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to two, two groups with that response. The second thing is, why can't we use X? The, the objection they'll why raise, why can't I use Wonderware? Why can't I use OPCUA? Why can't I use... They'll ask over and over and over again, why is it they can't already, they can't use something they're already paying for? And the answer is sometimes they can. And in fact, I just did a presentation yesterday where the recommendation for the proof of concept was going to be using four components based on a tech stack and three of them they already owned. There was one that was going to be new and that was the Canary Labs historian. They had OSI Pi. They asked, why can't we use OSI Pi? And I had to explain to them because OSI doesn't publish out. OSI is a monolith. They, they don't publish out over MQTT. They consume over MQTT, but they don't publish the context out. And there's no mechanism for you to take the context, asset frames, event frames, all that kind of stuff, and, it, and, and get, it in the, get that context in the hands of external applications that are not part of the OSI Pi partner network. Okay, So that's the second most common a question or objection. Why can't we use X? The other thing that they might say in there is who the fuck do you think you are? I mean, they, they literally, I, I have gotten that I've gotten, I mean, I literally have gotten people, you know, shots across the bow um, many, many, many times. Yeah. Oh, Vaughn's been on half the calls where that happens. Um, I cannot tell you how many members of it departments I've gotten fired. I, I, I wouldn't, I, 
I probably have four chief technical officers now at this point over the last two years, literally got fired. One got fired in front of me. They asked me to leave the room and then the board dismissed him from the board in executive session while I was sitting in the hallway. And then they called me back in. Okay. I mean, one was that another one was, a um, the director of it. Um, so to be clear, you're okay with Luke sacrificing one job to create more jobs. I am willing. I never suggest that someone should be fired. What I do say is you're not, you, this, this initiative is not going to be successful with that person in the role that they're in. Don't let your staff get in the way. Right. You got to work around this person. I mean, that's part of what we're getting hired for. And then the last one is leadership. What do you guys think leadership's um, top objection is? Yes. What's the ROI? (laughs) Okay. So here's what I, and here's how I respond to that one. When they say, what's the ROI? What's the top objection? Um, with the leadership group, my answer, I do two things. Number one, I say, you have to understand, let's go back to our core principles of digital transformation. It's a strategy. It's not a project. Okay. That doesn't mean that we're going to be, we're not going to be able to quantify ROI on a case by case basis through the iterative process. I want to add these dashboards. I want to collect this data. I want to do this machine learning use case. You're going to be able to quantify that, but I, we cannot quantify for you the ROI um, for the entire strategy. That's, there is no way to do that because it's an iterative process. I don't know everything you want today because what you want today is a function of what you know today. Tomorrow, you will know something different. Digital transformation is about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of your organization on a daily basis. And if what you want is a function of what you know, then as what you know grows, what you want changes. And if I have to calculate ROI for you for the entire strategy, I can't do that. But what I can do is I can show you this case study for this organization. And here's what we did. And I use, I use a very common case study for a project we did like three years ago. That was a intern you know, in most of the mentorships and those and members of mentorship and digital mastermind have seen this case study where uh, basically an intern hired us to do digital transformation in one core area for this tier, um, this tier one automotive supplier. He didn't get permission. He had $250,000 left over. He had five production lines. He had 47 machines, 47 PLCs. It needed integration, connect, connectivity to all the equipment. It needed um, you know, full stack. So he got approval directly above his head to use the $250,000 he had left over from another capital project to have us do this, this uh, digital transformation on this, this production line. It took a year to do the integration because we didn't have buy-in outside of this guy's department. So we had to work around a bunch of stuff. Then we started collecting data of January of 2017. We presented the dashboards. Uh, it wasn't just dashboards. It was actually analysis tools, the whole nine. Um, in January of 2017, we came back in six months to, to monitor, to look at the data. So what we looked at was the improvement of OEE, the decrease in waste, the increase in production. That's what we looked at and we charted it. If you guys are in mentorship, you've seen this because I've showed you this specific case study. They, it took them 60 days to six months to get OEE from in the 40s up into the 80s. It took them 
60 days to get, uh, or it took them about a year to get their waste from 35,000 units a month down to 500 units a month. It took them about uh, eight months to go from uh, 35,000 units of production per month to 70,000 per month in total units. At the end of the 18 months, that $250,000 investment yielded a $25 million return of which they took that $25 million and invested in their full North American digital transformation initiative, hired 60 something engineers. They deployed to their sites in Minnesota and Michigan, and they did a full deployment. I will show that case study. Um, the other thing that I will do is I'll do a theoretical discussion and I will say, and I'll do this first. I will say, CEO, so-and-so, where did you get your MBA? And they all, and it's always one of three places, right? So they either got it at Yale, they either got it at Wharton or they got it at Harvard, right? So they, and I will ask them, what was Apple's ROI on the iPhone when they pitched it in 2006? So when Steve Jobs was making the decision whether to invest $200 million into the development of the Apple iPhone, what was the ROI? It'll sell better there wasn't one. Yeah. yeah you did Apple know. doesn't do market analysis. They don't do, they don't do market studies. They don't allow the market to drive. They create products that, yeah, no, that yeah. and then they convince you that you need it. Okay. But then I really fuck them up by asking them this question. <laughs> this is where I really fuck them up. What's the ROI for you? How much money has your smartphone since 2007 saved or created for you? What's the ROI? Yes, it's, it's intangible. Is it it's, it's, the answer is the answer is you couldn't even measure it today. You know it's valuable. You know it's incredibly valuable. You know you do more work today than you did in 2007. You know that you are better connected. You're more aware of your your health, your financial stability, everything. But you can't quantify it for me. That's the value of data. You were printing out MapQuest? That's the value of data. I remember those days. So, so with that, the, my, here's my point. My point is, is that if you're a solutions architect and you're going to be doing digital transformation maturity assessments, okay, we talk about, this is one of the reasons we talk about um, multi-stack fluency. When we talk about you know, stop, stop um, specializing in one layer of the stack and gain fluency at every layer in the automation stack. The reason why you need to have that fluency is so you can answer these questions for cross-functional groups within the organization. Because check it out. Um, these, all, these groups all operate in different layers. See these guys here? These guys all operate in the PLC, SCADA, MES layer. These guys operate in the ERP and cloud layer. Both groups, right? Uh, all five groups operate in different layers in the stack. So anyway, Taylor, thank you for asking the question as to what are the major objections to digital transformation across these cross-functional groups. The answer is there are lots of objections. Most of the time, it's more curiosity 
Um, certainly at the operations layer, the maintenance engineering group, um, it's curiosity. These are normally, these are generally the two groups who need the help the most. The quality group, once you convince them, you know what their job is, they're definitely interested in hearing what you have to say. Why? Because the quality group is missing one key, one key element in their toolbox, one tool in their toolbox. Does everybody know what it is? It's real-time data from the equipment. The quality group is always missing the actual raw events from the machines, okay? And if they do have raw events from the machines, it's, you know, it's, it's barely the tip of the iceberg in terms of what they need, okay? Um, the IT group, most of the time they're leaving the meeting conspiring how they're gonna derail this initiative, okay? I mean, in most cases, that's what's happening. We go in knowing that, we prepare our customer for that. Listen, we're trying to identify the one person in the IT group who's gonna advocate for this, and then we're gonna leave everybody else out, and they're gonna be the only one involved in the proof of concept, right? When you do your proof of concept, you're building a team of like-minded thinkers, including a team made up of people that your client has in their facility. But you wanna make sure that everyone who's, who's working towards winning the results war as opposed to fighting the theoretical battles, that they are not going to undermine you in any way, shape or form, at least in the national stages right. of the implementation. And the leadership cares about one thing and one thing only, okay? And, that, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to care about this, by the way. It doesn't make them bad people. They care about the bottom line, and that is their job. I wanna close with one last thing, okay? Um, where are we at with the video? Yeah, we're about 15 minutes in. Okay, cool. I wanna close with one last thing when it comes to leadership. Here's a little inside baseball. Almost always when I'm in this meeting, this is the board of directors. This is almost always the people who run the actual company, okay? My primary goal, my primary goal when I go into that meeting is I wanna understand what their vision is, okay? I wanna know what is the vision of the leadership, okay? My secondary goal is I wanna find out what kind of leaders they are. There are two types of leaders in manufacturing, okay? There are leaders who believe that people who work on the plant floor are interchangeable. There are leaders who believe that you can create administrative and engineering controls so that you can change human beings out and it's not gonna matter, okay? That's obviously folly. I mean, it's obviously absurd. Anybody who's worked on the plant floor knows that the smartest people in the organization are the ones who are working on the plant floor. They could, if you just listen to them, they would solve all your problems. I mean, honestly, they really would. The other type of leader understands that. And what we want to know is what kind of leadership group they have. Do they have a leadership group who is figuring out a way to enable you to save us money? Or is this the type of leadership group who thinks you don't, they care about you, the human being. How can I extract value? Right, but how can I maximize the value I get out of you the same way I maximize the value I get out of this piece of software? They, they see you as a functional role as opposed to someone who provides both direct and indirect value, okay? Um, and, and, and by the way, that's very important to understand in that meeting. It's very important to walk away. And, and my, my team will tell you, we walk out of those sessions, we'll have a debrief out of each of these sessions and we'll define the groups. You know, what, where, was there a person in IT who's gonna be our champion? 
does leadership believe it's their job to enable you to solve problems, right? Um, give you the tools you need. You know, do they believe that the ERP investment was a good investment? You know, we're, we're really happy when the leadership team starts bitching about SAP. That's when we're, we know we're good. Once they start bitching, we spend way too much for it. And most of the stuff they promised us, they can't give us. Okay. So, all right. Uh, anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Is there anything else you want me to close with? Oh, wait. Uh, Zach always asked me to do this, guys. Make sure you hit like, subscribe, share with your friends, blah, 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 whatever. By the way, I don't care if you like or subscribe, either of them, but Zach really does care about this. <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, uh, so hey, real quick, was that, um, was that valuable? Like, was that cool? I thought it was good, yeah. Yes. Well, what is the community? I want to know. Excellent whiteboard. Sweet. Thanks, guys. Keep about 15 seconds on that. Hey, um, Cheryl, what did, what did you think? Yeah, can she still talk? Yeah. Can you hear? Yeah. Yes. I can talk. There we go. Perfect. Uh, what'd you think? I thought that was absolutely excellent. And I asked a few questions in uh, the live chat. I what was are they? wondering how, how security defines the levels of security for levels of the stack. In other words, so we asked that all, question. Is all security just no? <laughs> or is so, it? So we asked them, what is their security strategy? The IT department looking for, um, do they believe, are, are they a Purdue house? Are they a modified Purdue house? So do they use the Purdue security model? If they do, then we know what their strategy is. If they use modified Purdue, we try to get them to answer like, what's the delta between Purdue proper and, and the, you know, do they use a physical DMZ or do they use like virtual DMZs, that kind of stuff? And then, or is it the wild west? Is it undefined? You know what I mean? Is it really our security changes on a case by case basis? You know? Right. Whether they what like else? you or not. Everyone said awesome. Yeah. Uh, any other questions that she asked? What home performance. Uh, how do they meet performance? Do, do they even have any way to evaluate what the performance needs are of the operating group? And, and the answer is, is that it's all uh, theoretical. I re Very rarely do we find a leadership group or an operations group who has, where they, they have a firm goalpost and they know and they know how to measure where they are on the field. Very, very exactly. rarely. Very exactly. Rarely. So how so how can they say that what you're suggesting or proposing doesn't meet that? Correct. The <laughs> it, 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 and and we will say that to one another after the meeting. And occasionally, I might, you know, um, you know, I, I'm 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 pretty selective about picking my fights in those meetings. Rarely do I, I'll get a, get into a fight unless, um, I mean, it's always as respectful as we can possibly make it, but, um, there, sometimes there are people who are there, their goal is to cut your legs out from underneath you. I mean, they're, I mean, I've been yelled, screamed at by people and, yeah. and we'll, we'll yeah. get off that meeting. We'll get off the meeting and be like, okay, this guy, clearly that person is invested in some solution they've already got in place. And it's not important to them as to whether or not it's what's best for the company. You know, it, it, there, sometimes that happens. Uh, was there any other? 
the fear is that they're going to be responsible for maintaining a system they don't know how to maintain. Correct. And that, does, that comes up in, but I wouldn't say it's like one of the top three objections. It's probably top five, but it's probably not top three. Yes, they will, IT will generally ask the TCO question. You know, what's total yeah. cost of ownership? What resources do we have to add? That kind of stuff. JS asks for multi-operation environments. Do you focus on the bottleneck operation or do you use an aggregate? Uh, aggregate. Well, the aggregate will drive you to the bottleneck. I mean, you eventually want to get to the bottleneck, Jeffrey, but we use an aggregate to drive us to the bottleneck. I think this is a really good, uh, Excellent. good stream, yeah. Awesome. Sorry, sorry we went so far over. We wanted to test this idea. You guys will see the edited version of this video tomorrow, and you'll be able to see the difference between what do I say live and what do I, you know, what does Zach edit out, that kind of stuff. So, see you guys. Awesome. Appreciate y'all.